Education. Today we have Joseph Maynard from the Osteopathic Health Centre talking to us today about gait, barefoot science and anything else. Yeah. Hello. Thanks for having me. No worries. Do you want to just introduce yourself and just say where you, what your background is and how you ended up in Dubai? Yeah, so me as a, as a person, being extremely sporty all my life uh, from as young as I can remember. Um, everything from swimming to basketball and I've ended up predominantly on running um, and then I decided what do I do as a job what can I how can I push myself to get to the next stage and what can help me in my future so I actually started off with my dad getting injured all the time running himself and he said why don't you become a physio so you can treat me and then I ended up being a physio worked in the NHS in the UK for nine years uh, then moved to Dubai two and a half years ago and that's funny enough, we're away there. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Luckily, I met in my physiotherapy clinic. And basically, yeah, then I amalgamated both those two things together my love as a hobby and then my love as, as work. How did you guys meet? Do you want to say um, that on me? Yeah, so uh, obviously, we've discussed my accident, everything that happened, and I've talked about it a little bit. But uh, initially, when I got out of hospital, I started, and once all my wounds healed. Uh, I started seeing you for hydrotherapy and some yep. physio sessions and you and I used to chat a lot in the pool. <laughs> you would show me <laughs> how to move the yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was fun. We had some good chats. Yeah, um, yeah so I think uh, on a personal basis, obviously, we got along really well and mm -hmm. it was just uh, hydrotherapy is quite an amazing thing, particularly yeah. when you're wheelchair mounted. Hydrotherapy is, uh, is amazing. Brilliant. I had a client yesterday literally who had quite a complex fracture of his knee and he's, he's been back walking on his crutches for one day and I said to him, have you got a swimming pool at home? We're in Dubai, a lot of people have swimming pools at home. Um, so I literally said, I want you in the pool an hour a day and he was in the, hopefully he's in the pool today for an hour and I know straight away it's going to help us. Yeah, hydrotherapy is amazing because it just takes off 50% of your weight if the water's empty your belly button. So yeah, it's brilliant. I think as well, just to digress on the topic, uh, for someone who doesn't have a lot of like stimulation when you're in a wheelchair, to be able to move freely in the, in the water, it's just, it feels so lovely. I got obsessed with it. Um, yeah, it addictive. Yeah. It's worse things to be addicted to. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we used to do a bit with the military, um, but it was a bit more late stage rehab than what you guys were doing. We just used to get people in the pool to try and keep their fitness levels up, who has some sort of about the injury generally, but nothing was so complex that they had to be lifted in or kind of, uh, I imagine you guys did a lot of it slow moving after you were holding. Oh, so Joe used to put me into a floaty and just walk around the pool and I used to just lay there like a star. Just to get hip muscles to engage with some resistance to the water, um, low level, because obviously gravity's not really uh, elicited at all, so it's the easiest way to, to switch on your muscles. Um, yeah, no, we used to do a bit more higher intensity stuff with the guys. Of course, of course. Just trying to get we did um, it in university, I did the low level stuff in university, but from there I've never had experience doing Anyway, so let's uh, yeah. diverge. So we wanted to obviously bring you on today to discuss uh, your gate analysis mm -hmm. course that is going to be featured on A Life of Education really soon. Yep. So do you want to tell us a little bit about the course and what people are going to learn on it? Yeah, of course. Um, it's a four-part course, um, talking everything and anything about gait, basically. Everything from the anatomy, with the joints and the muscles that are included in the gait cycle, to the phases of the gait and how to assess that gait. Biomechanics, uh, even talk quite a bit on whole, one, one of the presentations is on the foot itself, 
and how um, integral that is into the gait cycle, whether it be running or walking. Um, the most important thing, obviously, your foot is the only thing that comes into contact with the ground in the gait cycle, so I do spend quite a bit of time on that, and I do advocate the, the foot in everything we should do in life, so that's probably what we're going to progress and talk on to about today. Yeah, um, so the first one is just a general introduction, isn't it? A general introduction yeah. to, to the gait cycle and the different stages of gait. Um, you spoke a lot about the difference between the two sets of terminology. Yes, so when you look at the first, in the first presentation, it is literally introductions to gait, uh, gait analysis. So there's, a few, there's two different ways that people talk about gait. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but the most important difference, for example, is the ground contact, the initial contact, or first point of contact, or heel strike. So when you talk to people, um, say you talk to your physiotherapist, your personal trainer, your podiatrist, you might hear the words being thrown about on heel strike or at forefoot strike, which is very specific. But I tend to use a different technique or different technique of analysis where I talk about initial contact because everybody's initial contact is different. So if you were writing your notes and you said, uh, this patient had a four foot heel strike, which if you were using that too much, it doesn't make sense. So you say this patient or this client's initial contact is with a, a various heel strike, for example. So an outward turned heel strike, then that would make a lot more comfortable and a lot, a lot more sense. Yeah. Um, so that's how it tends to work. And even that sounds a little confusing right now, but that's what the talk exactly. explains. Yeah, yeah, the difference between the two, kind of the old school words and then the more specific um, terminology. No, I, I really enjoy it. We were listening in when it was on, and um, it's some stuff how you don't really come across in the general pop, kind of general population world. But it's so important when you have somebody who you're trying to help lose weight, and you know you spend five minutes talking while they walk on a treadmill, and yeah. hips are moving. You know they're going the, 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 the strides not very long. They're pounding into the, the, the surface of the thing, making a lot of noise. Your instinct is telling you that there's something wrong, but there's not much you can do about it standing on the gym floor. Most, most people look at somebody walking on a treadmill, or whether you're a personal trainer or a physiotherapist, and a patient has come to you with an injury, or with a problem, or with want to lose weight, but they can't lose weight because they have this niggle, or they can't run on the treadmill full stop because the mechanics are totally different than running on the road. Lots of different variances. But when you do then look at this game, you can, like, like he said, you can tell something is wrong. You know there's something just off there but you can't put it into words and you can't put it onto paper. So hopefully with the talk we're going to go through you'll be able to break down each of the cycles, each of the phases and then see where they're differentiating or differing from normal. When I say normal in inverted commas because everybody has their own gait cycle. Just as literally it's just as integral to them as a fingerprint or a voice recognition or your pupil or your retina. Literally their gait cycle is yeah, it's funny. I mean, if you look at somebody, um, a silhouette of your friend walking, mm -hmm. or a group of your friends, you'll actually be able to tell which friend it is. Which is a, which is a funny thing that, that we've done in the past. I've been involved in like where you just in the darkness, or you just tell someone to walk, and then you, you know by the shape of their walk, you know by the you know obviously their posture, their height, their little mannerisms. They bounce up and down, they sway side to side, long stride, short stride. Hey, like I said, everyone has got a very signature walk. So maybe for people who are not so familiar with, with gait, what do you think are the take-home elements um, about learning about gait and understanding? What can people 
So, like I, I think I've quoted some, uh, some quotes in the past, the human body does best what it does the most. Um, so if you're seeing a client who has a, a non-structural leg length discrepancy, so the legs are the wrong length because of pelvic shift or something like that, you need to look at them walking. And the main take home is don't try and assess someone running before you assess them walking because if everything moves a little bit too quick when you're running. If you can't see how they're walking, then when it comes to running, you're not going to be able to really focus on everything. And when people do look at their gait analysis, they tend to look at the whole thing. And you don't really want to do that. You want to break it down and look at just the right foot, then the right knee foot, then the right knee foot and hip, and then the right knee foot, hip and the back. Then you do it all on the left side. And then you add in the arm swing, and then you add in the torso rotation at the top. But if you break it down, it's very simple. So I, like I said on the talk, I talk to you how to break it down, but it's not a, it's a guideline, it's not a you need to do this, it's a, okay, I'm gonna use this, 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 what Joe taught me, but then I want to add in maybe this, 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 and I wanna look at that, 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 and it's making sure you really look at all the elements, and trying to replicate what they do. If they say I get paid when I walk uphill, don't assess them walking on the flat. You need to put that on an incline, you need to see whether they're leaning forwards from their core, so it's trying to make it specific to the client when you do the, the gait analysis because they'll literally tell you what's wrong with them without you having to really tell them. And essentially the, the reason to understand and analyse gait would be to get people out of pain and potentially to improve their performance. Yeah, 100%. Um, it's better to prevent an injury than to manage one. Most people come to a physiotherapist or a, a rehab specialist and say, I keep on pulling my hamstring, I keep on getting uh, Achilles tendonitis or tendonopathy, I want to stop it. So I can, in theory, fix the symptoms, but their problem might be derived from the mechanics of their running technique or their gait. So there's no point in me assessing their gait when they're in pain, because they're going to have a different gait. So they should come to me afterwards. It's like when people run and they get shin splints all the time. Exactly. So you want to correct how they run so that they don't get shin splints. And not just keep on treating the shin splints every six months. You see yeah. the same clients coming in and out. And I say to them, I want to see when you're not in pain and when you're better, but who goes to a physiotherapist when you're not in pain? It doesn't compute, but pain isn't the only symptom you need to be aware of. It's function, it's um, strength, it's performance, it's everything, it's not just pain. Yeah, because you've got the pain aspect, but also from an efficiency perspective, like if you have uh, a sedentary client who's coming back from sitting at a desk for so long, and the only kind of walking they do is maybe in and out of the car, and maybe around the shops, if you can improve their gait cycle, you can make them much more, you can improve their performance just simply walking around. And then that in the longer term will keep their back and keep their joints in a healthy uh, position. So when they come to you for the gym, everything's soft and fluid and moving gently. It's not that they're just, you know, they're all stiff and bunged up because they can't walk around. So they can't even walk in to the gym. Yeah, I think for, this is my understanding of it, I think when it's clients that have normal day jobs, uh, it's about reducing their pain. And then when it's elite athletes, it's like yeah. nanoseconds. Yeah, that yeah. gets you from second to first, yeah. things like that. So it makes it a massive difference when it comes to competitive sports. And like, like Keith was saying, it, you, you sit all day and Dubai is a place where it's very sedentary. That you don't, no one uses stairs. No one really walks anywhere, you can't really commute to work, you sit behind them, you wake up, you sit down, you have your breakfast, then you sit in the car, you sit at work, then 
you sit in the car, you sit having dinner, and then you go to bed. So you're not really using your body as it's designed for, which is extension and upright movement and, and running and movement and just fluid fluidity. So, like I said, our job basically is to install uh, the human's basically DNA, which is his functional movement. Yeah. Um, so then, when the talk goes through the introduction, talk about the stages of the of gait and kind of what explains the terminology. The first part is the walking, and then the second part is the running. What are the kind of somebody who uh, wants to start running? Because you know the way people can tell you know running is the easiest form of exercise. Just get outside and go for it. You don't have need a lot of equipment, etc., etc. What kind of uh, what's the more common issues that you find with people who just want to get running again? The when you, look, when you look at running, it's, it should be as easy as breathing. We're, we're designed to run. We're bipedal. We're, our ancestry is that we are endurance hunters. So I think something, I was reading an article recently, that a long, long time before we even had spears, before we had guns, before we had bow and arrows, we literally used to just hunt prey by just keep running after them until the prey, obviously they overheat, humans don't overheat, they get heat stroke and pass away and then we've got our prey, that's how we used to hunt. So that's how, like, I'm sure you might have read that Born to Run book with Ataro Mara in uh, talking about ancestry and hunting. They literally hunt their prey for 200 miles, then they find it curled up underneath the bush and then that's their dinner for their family for the week. So we are literally designed to run. But, like going back to what I said before, we sit behind desks now. We're not designed to do anything, like I said also before, our body does best what we do the most, which is sitting behind desks, flex postures, which isn't normal. So when it comes to the running form, someone wakes up 1st of January, I'll tell you what, let's go and try and lose some weight, let's go running, let's do something. They put a brand new pair of trainers on with rigid support because they were sold them in the shop, they're the most expensive, why not? They put them on and they go for their run, then they come to me after a week with anterior knee pain, Achilles pain, they get plantar fasciitis, like I said, <coughs> shin splints, uh, low back pain predominantly, get a lot of people with low back pain. It, the list goes on and on and on. And then they come to me with the pain, they leave, they start running again, they come back to me with the pain, rather than just saying, just someone show me how do I run. And like, a, there's a really good analogy that some Singers can just sing, they've got a beautiful voice. Some people need singing lessons and they still have an equally beautiful voice. It's the same with running. Some people can just run and have amazing technique. Some people need to be taught how to run and they're equally as good and they can still run and pick up And it just depends. So essentially after you would do, say, a game analysis, you would do corrective exercises to assist people. That would be the, the bridging the gap. Yeah, okay. the prehab work, which is so big out there in the world at the moment. Um, preventative medicine is all the way forwards and everything from heart disease right down to having a stiff big toe. Uh, preventative medicine is the way because in the long run it's going to save you, the company, insurance companies, the hospitals, time and money and that's where uh, the world should be going. So what are some of the corrective exercises for some of the conditions? Ooh, Just question. like a little taster. So when you look at, uh, I'll try to break it down because I think on one of the talks, actually it was the second talk I spoke about, I, I, one of the things I spoke about in the running technique were the five ways the body absorbs shock. So when you break that down, you look at the foot and ankle complex, the knee complex and the pelvis, and there's a few areas between all of them. If a patient comes to you and they have a reduction in dorsal flexion, which means reduction of the foot coming up towards the shin, 
then in theory, you're going to put more strain through the posterior parts of the leg, through the Achilles, through the plantar fascia. Something as simple as just stretching the, the calf muscles, the two main components in the calf muscles, uh, foam rolling and self-soft tissue release, those can be the simplest ways to reduce foot and ankle problems. And most, I would say, I think it's up to about 90% of foot and ankle injuries are derived from the calf muscle and or poor mechanics of the calf. So that's an easy way and a quick fix. People should try and just get everything loose. Then it's still sore and see a professional answer. Nice. And what about for shin So the shin splints, the, the layman term of shin splints is the early stage of stress or medial tibial stress syndrome is what I would call it. And it's predominantly a biomechanical problem due to either a tight calf or an increase in pronation of the foot and a sustained pronation of the foot, which means the foot collapses in towards a, a flat foot posture. So we need to correct the arch, we need to increase arch integrity, and we need to try and increase the strength of the intrinsic muscles in the foot, so then the pain and pressure doesn't then hit you in the shin when you run. Then we also come onto the factor of, is it the point that I'm just slamming my foot into the floor over and over again, and you get something called ground reaction force, where it's the force that the ground is putting back up into the foot when you put your foot on the floor. When you land on the front of your foot, or the forefoot, it is dispersed between a larger surface area, so you have less ground force, so the shock is attenuated and is settled down, so it doesn't hit you in the shin, the knee, and the hip. But if you land with a very drastic heel strike, the heel is smaller than the forefoot, and you're landing with a straight leg more often than not, the force has got to go somewhere, and unfortunately it'll hit you anywhere up the chain, starting more than the heel, then it'll hit you in the shin. So making sure that you have a nice integral integral arch, so lots of uh, barefoot exercises, walking exercises, and grass, and sand, just to strengthen the muscles in the foot, pretty good. And uh, along with increasing the height of the arch through strengthening a muscle called the tibialis posterior, which helps to create a sling for that medial arch. So but anything along those lines will help in changing biomechanics at a low level. But when you're running, it becomes a lot harder because your body foot's on the floor for milliseconds. You haven't got time to think, I need to increase my arch height, it just should come naturally. So there's a question that I wanted to discuss, I'm so eager to talk about Please. this because I hear so much uh, conversation about this and it's barefoot running versus wearing really supported shoes. Yes. So maybe you can explain to us why is that conversation there yeah. and what, what's better suited for people? Um, I'm sure, I don't know if Keith wants to jump in here, Obviously, do you have clients coming to you asking you about barefoot and forefoot and running technique? Yeah. We talk about it, but they don't. I don't have people who come to me looking for advice, looking for like, should they do it? Mm -hmm. um, the question tends to pop up when you see people in the gym, either in their bare feet gymming or yeah. wearing those five finger toes. Vibrant. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the conversation just flows. It's not so much they, they don't ask me for advice. And I've, I've sent a couple of people to you mm -hmm. um, for a pure fluid gait assessment in the past. So yeah, so the theory of barefoot running versus shod running uh, or shoe foot running um, is huge at the moment. And pretty much ever since um, McDougall brought out the book Born to Run, no one really heard about it. People thought, oh, you see the Kenyans in the London, the London Marathon. 20 years ago, people used to run barefoot, you think, oh, he's a crazy guy, he's going to stand on some nails or on some glass. But they obviously do it for a reason, and he wins the races for a reason. 
Footwear these days, like I said, not to name names of footwear, but some have extreme amount of support in the foot. Yeah, I've noticed as well the heels can be really chunky, like yeah. huge. Some of it, there's one shoe, like I said, I'm not going to name names, but it looks like you run on a cloud. And another shoe, which <laughs> is probably one of the most famous uh, brands in the world. I think you can name them. I mean, Nike Air Max have a massive shoe. I don't know how many people run in them. Yeah, so basically, Nike have just brought out this shoe that they publicize it by, I don't know if you've seen the videos. I think I own it, so. <laughs> oh dear, you own that shoe. I think I do, because it does feel like I'm running okay. on a cloud, but I have- Well, you've got a slightly different situation, yeah. yeah. So you look at you look at the actual shoe itself, and they, they publicize it by putting a shoe on a sponge, then on a spring, then on a trampoline, then on a cloud, and say, look how supportive and soft this shoe is when you run. That's awful, because the science behind it, which we'll go into a little bit, your foot has 26 bones, 33 joints. It's the most plastic thing in the human body. It's designed to move and mold the surroundings. You put it in this really big, clumsy, clumsy ugly shoe. It might look pretty, fashion for function, but your whole body is just it's, it's limiting what the foot is meant to do, which is absorb shock. So then you put somebody in a really big heeled shoe, the brain's signals go, I've got a big comfy heel on this shoe, I can now slam my heel into the floor when I run. It's just a way, it's just a safety mechanism. As soon as you take a shoe off somebody and said run, you physically can't run with a heel strike because it's painful. So it naturally puts you onto your toes or midfoot, and in doing so then, engages the five mechanisms of shock control. And when you absorb shock, you don't Can think you just it, go over them? What are the five? The five. Of yeah. course, I've got them, I've got them in, in, in my head here. So when you look at the foot, so we'll start at the foot itself. When your foot naturally hits the floor with a four-foot strike, you absorb shock. Then you get pronation, which absorbs a little bit more shock. So at this point here, you've stored all of your energy now is in your Achilles tendon and your calf. That energy then can be used then to push you forwards rather than just slamming your heel into the floor and all the energy goes straight into the floor with sound, with noise, with heat. Like I said, energy can't be destroyed. Um, it can just be transferred, which is I think one of Newton's laws. And then the second one then is an absorbent knee. If you land on the floor with a straight knee, shock is attenuated right up through the chain. But if you have an absorbent knee, it can act as a spring as well. So now if you're adding those first three, Foot dorsiflexion, so the ankle's absorbing shock. Then you've got pronation. Then you've got the knee bending. It's like coiling a spring up. Then you're adding the pelvis movements, which is through anterior tilt of the pelvis and through lateral tilt of the opposite side. So now you've coiled in this whole leg. As you then come to toe off, you can release all that energy. So it's stored energy. It just mechanically makes a lot more sense than just slamming you into the floor. Then you have to create more movement by then using more muscles to then push you lost all that energy. But like I said, going back to the shoes, sorry, um, if you're a forefoot runner or a midfoot strike runner, you land on your forefoot. How many shoes that you wear, expensive shoes from all these big brands, actually have support in the forefoot? All the supports yeah, in the heel. Yeah, I don't know any. Exactly. Everything, like if you look at the, the front of the shoe, there's nothing there. And it's also what's interesting because now I've started to follow a lot of these foot Instagram accounts that are talking about rehab yeah. um, of the foot. All of the shoes are really narrow at the front and they don't allow your toes to have space yeah, and movement. Yeah, so, like, so in theory then, if you look at it, a, a marathon runner could run a London marathon in a pair of 
Converse, for example, because if he's a four-foot striker, he doesn't need any support in the midfoot or the, the arch, which is what all these really expensive $200 shoes actually provide, because they're relying on people who run on their heels, which is naturally unviable. You look at the, all the gold medal winners across anything from 100 meters up to marathon, no one runs on their heels. They, they do that for a reason, the best in the world for a reason. Um, and unfortunately, you can rely on these, uh, these shoes. Sold on the yeah. <laughs> minimalist. Yeah, but yours is slightly different. Yes, yeah. there are some abnormalities. And, yeah, because yeah. It, this is a good thing to talk about because the key is that you have a mobile foot that can absorb the shock in the first instance before you get to the the dorsal flexion and the or the knee rather than the hip. Mm -hmm. Whereas your foot is because of the, the surgeries and stuff, you're still a little Shot bit stiff. Yeah. yeah. So for someone like you, in order for you to go in the evening time and go and get an enjoyment out of the run, you do need to go to Nike, call them up and get that heel, the, the, the heel strap, so that you can physically go and run. Yeah, so I'll tell you guys maybe why I like semi, so I try both. So I try to, I try in my house to walk around with no shoes on, and then when I leave, or when I try and run, try is the operative word there, then I wear really supportive shoes, and it's just because my feet hurt so much. Um, even after like three or four Ks, like I just can't walk and I can't even stand on them. I have to lay down and it just hurts so much. So I've found, just from personal experience, that the more supportive the shoe is, the less my foot hurts. But that's obviously diminishing. It's not as bad as it used to be. But same thing if I go, like recently I went back to Sydney and I was walking all around Sydney and my feet were hurting so much and then I put like really supportive shoes on and they were fine. So I definitely understand that my yeah, but there's a lot of people like that. There's a lot of people who are forefront stripe or hurt, you know, because they're the sedentary people who just go out. And so it's sort of, it's sort of this is where the conversation gets interesting because for the most efficient way to go out and hunt for 200 miles might be the uh, you know the forefoot adapter surface, but then there is sedentary people, so that's the reality that we're in. What what do we do? Well, I don't really classify myself as sedentary. No, no, no. no. <laughs> but injured. So maybe yeah. you can impart some knowledge on that. So yep. for, for people who, so on my feet, I've had like two surgeries on one, I've had five on the other. They've been reconstructed loads of times. Obviously, yep. I shattered them. So maybe for people with, say, my type of condition or something similar, what would you recommend to them? So obviously, talking about yourself, obviously you had these calcaneal fractures, um, complex calcaneal fractures, which had to be... Um, basically put that together, put, put back in pieces, and that comes onto the fact, in your case, your problem was you had this fracture, you had surgery, but your byproduct is the fact then that you've, your gait's changed, you're weaker through all the muscles because you've not used the feet correctly, basically lots of elements. So it's made, it's progression. I think as well, it's, this is what I found, is that my feet are structurally a different shape, and that's changed everything else. Yeah. Just because the shape of my bones are not the same. And so it's just, it's a cascade of, of oh wow, this is great. And the right and left side are different shapes to each other as well. So that makes it even. So like I said to you before, because you've got so many bones in the foot and so many joints, the foot has an amazing capacity to compensate. And what you've done is you've just gone through the biggest compensation ever. You've changed your foot, you've changed the rest of your body. I've got uh, clients who undergo drastic uh, mid-foot and mid-foot corrections, people have big bunions on their big toes, all of these people have these 
degenerative changes. They have surgery on their feet and the surgeon will rightly sit in front of them and say, you're going to hate me for a year to 18 months because I'm changing a massive part of your body. Um, aesthetically, the bunion's gone, the toe can move, but you've been relying on having that bunion to keep you stood upright for the last 30 years. So we, I see these clients and clients come to me and say, I want to get rid of this bunion. And I say, it's a pain for it. No, it just looks ugly in my high heels and my Christiane Boutons. And I go, that, okay, that's your problem. But if they do this, you will be in a boot for six to eight weeks. You will be having rehab for this, 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 this. I can give you exercises to stop your bunion getting worse because the main cause for bunion problems is either footwear or tightness through the gastroc or through the calf because it changes the angles of pull on the big toe, which then causes the big toe to drift outwards and sometimes underneath it's the little toes. Pronation as well. And pro yeah, pronation as well. So it's that whole moment movement. And you end up getting what we call pinch callus, which is hard skin on the inside of your big toe. Because you, you can see that's the way you're pushing off. So if you keep pushing off the inside of your big toe, the big toe's only going to go one way and that's pointing off to the outside. So there's, there's tons of different ways. And you brought up a really good fact earlier that people who wear these really narrow shoes, like uh, Adidas for example, they're known to be really narrow at the front. When you naturally put your forefoot on the floor with a forefoot strike, your five metatarsal heads should spread and absorb shock. But when you're in a narrow shoe, you don't have that shock, so you don't have that spread. So the, the pressure's got to go somewhere, usually into the plantar fascia, or if not into the Achilles. So it's it's complex. And I speak to lots of uh, orthopedic surgeons, and you have orthopedic surgeons who specialise in knees. You have orthopedic surgeons who specialise in shoulders. There's only real three, four joints in the knee that you can really think of. Like I said, 33 in the foot. So. Uh, Foot and ankle surgeons are very proud people and they treat the most complex part of the body. Well, I remember one of my surgeons saying to me that they can replace everything. So he's like, oh, we can replace your hip, we can replace your knee, but your feet, we're not there yet. So it's obviously very, very complex. Yeah, like the, the talocural joint or the joint where you're, the main joint in the ankle that does the dorsiflexion and plantiflexion can have anything up to seven or eight times your body weight going through four centimetres squared. It's, just, it's so much pressure through the one area but it's very, very, very uncommon to get arthritis at this joint because it's so mechanically sound. I've, the only time you ever see someone with arthritis in their ankle is if they've fractured their ankle in the past um, or if they've had trauma to their foot. It's very rare that you just develop arthritis in your ankle. Um, and that's because the foot is just so, in theory, perfect. It's the most human part of our body other than opposable thumbs, more than any other animal. And it's just something that is overlooked. There's not enough specialists out there that specialise in the foot and ankle. That's why I'm trying to be one of those people because... So basically we need to look after our feet. So what, how, how can we do that then? Um, going to this, this barefoot running, people, like I said, they read the book, they read the articles, they're on Instagram, they're seeing that people are walking around with hobbit feet and in really cool foot positions. So they take their shoes off and they go, right, I'm going to go and run 10k on the road. And they come to me then with stress fractures in their big toes, they come to me with obviously blisters, glass in their foot. It's not as simple as I'm going to take my shoes off and start running. It's a phased return, to, it's a phased running technique you need to work on. It'd be taking your shoes off, going to the beach or on a grass field, run for 30 seconds, walk for 30 seconds, do that four or five times, put your shoes back on. And it's a slow build up. Um, what I usually tell people when you do this barefoot running or try to increase your running, you need to finish every session thinking I could have done more than thinking I should have done less because then you can only add to it. You can't take away when you've got your stress fracture and you're in a boot for six weeks. So that's the best thing, slow and steady and just give your body time to adapt. Um, okay, so if we're starting like at the very beginning, 
Yeah. You might just go for a walk on the beach with no shoes on. That would be a start. Yeah. To like feel the sand underneath your feet, maybe like spread your toes. We were talking about this earlier before the podcast started. Toe separators. Yep. Yeah. So some people are making a lot of money off a little bit of silicon. It's not the first <laughs> time the human body makes money off silicon. Um, but the most important thing is letting the foot do its work. So your toes should naturally separate and spread when you put your foot on the floor. But people's feet become very, very lazy. Um, and that brings me on to the fact of using these big, com comfy shoes or um, insoles. Like, if you break your collarbone, you put your arm in a sling. The, the collarbone heals, but then the arm's weak. If you have a lazy foot, your sling or your support is a really big shoe or an insole. You take that insole or support away and you've got a really even weaker foot. So, like I said, walking on sand and walking on the worst bit of the sand, where all the shells are, where all the stones are, that's the best bit to walk on, not the really nice soft bit where the water's lapping upon your feet. You want to walk on the sharp bits of um, coral and all that, because that's the way your body moves around the, the, rit, the, the, the problems on the floor. If I do that, I will get the most sensitive, painful feelings through the soles of my feet. Like, any sort of surface for me that's not smooth or flat, it's as if I'm walking on daggers. Yeah. Like it's pathetic. Like if I'm walking out from the soft sand into the ocean, that little bit where the shells are just hanging out on the shore, like I'm, I'm I, if you look at me, it's as if I'm walking on hot ash. It's because it's Irish. Just it's, it's, no, it's, well, just, if you were Australian and you, our beaches are full of. We you wear thongs all the time, you're yeah. constantly wearing your short sandals, right? Yeah. We're, we're being British, we very rarely wear sandals and shoes. And if you think how sore it is, say someone leaves a little bit of a Lego or an upturned plug on the floor and you stand on it, it. I'm dead, man. your day's gone, right? That's, that's you done for the day. But if you kept on walking on those Lego and those little pieces that your foot will, as soon as you, it just molds around it, it molds around the problem. So I was at the beach actually yesterday with uh, my little niece, she's four years old, and she was running around on stones, on pebbles, and just she didn't feel anything. My brother was chasing her on these stones and was, was hobbling around like an old man. He's only, he's only 28. So, but then I ran after and I could do it because I literally have never got shoes on my feet, pretty much. And it becomes normal. There's so many nerve endings in the bottom feet. That's why people have ticklish feet. You look at somebody who barefoot runs or who walks around barefoot all day, they won't have ticklish feet. You find somebody who lives in shoes all day, they have baby soft skin on the bottom of their feet. Yeah, that's me. It's super, super ticklish. My feet are full of hard skin, which is very you know, unattractive, but it does the job. Functional, yeah. It's functional, yeah. exactly. So what else can we do? Because here at Secretly, I'm writing notes down at the top of my yeah. head, like I need to do this, I need to do that. So for other people who want to start focusing on uh, working their feet and maybe yeah. um, getting a little bit stronger in their feet, what else can they do? There's so much good stuff, and you said yourself on Instagram and YouTube, just typing in foot pages, there's one called the Foot Collective, yeah, which we did mention, collective. and uh, big shout out to them, they're, they're brilliant at what they do, but they're pitching it to people who want to get better, you need to be aware that you can't just start walking barefoot like I said to you before, so YouTube, Instagram, just the internet is very good, or finding a specialist, the, special, the most specialist person in feet in medicine is a podiatrist in theory if you think of it as far as a degree. They've got a degree in the foot, literally. But, I've got best friends with podiatrists and I hate me for it, but they are very medical. It's like going to a doctor if you've got uh, cancers and illnesses and they apply you with medications or you see a homeopath. The, obviously, the science is there, but there's also there's the natural way. 
you see a podiatrist with a collapsed arch, a stiff big toe, a bunion, here's the insult. You see a physiotherapist who specializes in mechanics, they'll say, well, let's just loosen that big toe, let's give you the exercise to strengthen and increase your arch, so you don't need the insult. Like, I'm trained to mold insoles for the last 10 years. I've never made one, because I don't need to, because we just train the foot, basically. So, going back to your question, there's a lot you can do. Yeah, I know I started, sorry to interrupt you, I started doing, um Basically around my house, I walk on my tippy toes. So I walk around on my toes and then I walk back and then every time I'm in an elevator alone, I don't do this in public, I try and like do heel raises and then stand on my toes and then try and stand on one leg and then stand on the other. So CCTV, CCTV yeah. footage will be rather interesting. There's a really nice exercise that people can do just simply sitting at home on the couch with regarding the toe separators without going out to spend a fortune. It's just to put your fingers between your toes. Just sit there, try and get your knuckles of your, like your, line, your first knuckle of each finger between each toe all the way across your feet. I think I showed you that. Perhaps, yeah, that's not yeah, that. and it, like, it's not comfortable, but it's, no. after a while, it feels nice in your feet because you feel like your toes are moving into positions that they don't really move into, like, and that's, that's separated apart from each other. And then once you can get your fingers comfortably down, like where almost like the webbing is touching each, uh, the webbing of your fingers is on the webbing of your toes, then start to bend and rotate the foot around all different directions and you'll feel the structures all the way through the sole of your foot stretching out. I think that's a really nice one. You just, it doesn't take any effort to sit down, cross your leg and put your fingers between your toes. I've seen some where you get like marbles and you pick up the marbles with your toes and then put them into a jar and you've got to do like yeah, one marble up. at a time. Mm -hmm. I think that's really cool too. Or you get a towel and you scrunch also and then good. press away. Yeah. So like, people always laugh at my toes because they're like fingers. And uh, I'm going to hide them now. Right? But exactly, you look at people who are born without hands, they can do everything with their toes. You have pretty much all the same muscles in your hands, other than the thumb and the big toe, they are different. Then the toes, like, they can bend, they can straighten, you should be able to open and close, and you should be able to use the lumbricals and do a contraction, which are the muscles in the foot. You should be able to do that, but you don't, because you, you get these, uh, these, these lazy feet. So, yeah. so what do you wear when you run? What, make a shoe? Or what sort of shoe? Yeah, style? both, both, yeah. So at the moment I wear um, a low profile four millimeter drop on my heel. So four millimeters difference between the front of the foot and the heel. Um, just because it's, finding a zero millimeter drop is very hard to find. So uh, a four millimeter drop um, is what I wear uh, when I do all my competitions. And I wear, I'm actually wearing New Balance at the moment. Um, there are a lot of good brands out there. Brooks, New Balance, Saucony, uh, they're all very good brands for running. But then you look at the brands that are good for fashion, Nike, Adidas, Puma, those sort of things. They're fashionable shoes, but their function isn't really there um, as far as the, the mechanisms of movement which we've been speaking about. And would you recommend people run in Vibrams? Vibrams are brilliant. I recommend you can use them if your foot can use them, if that makes sense. Um, I don't want you to go and buy a pair and think, right, let's go. You need, they're there if, the only reason you wear them is if the terrain is dangerous or is hazardous. Like there is, there might be glass on the floor, stuff that you can't adapt your foot to have hard enough skin to stop a razor blade digging in your foot, for example. So the only time I'd really get you to use them is if you're wearing in a hazardous scenario. The good thing in Dubai, all the running tracks are those lovely foam running tracks. They're good for training your foot, but they're not good for performance. Because going back to the ground reaction force, if you put 100% of the force on that track, the track's going to absorb 10% of it because it's spongy. And then that sponge then is going to limit 
and take away some of the force coming back up into your foot and propel you forward. So I was watching the Ironman recently, and when you look at the running track down on Jamira Beach, uh, you've got the sponge, you've got the wooden slate, and you've got about a, a foot wide section brick. of brick. For basically the competition where people are running towards each other is who's going to stay on this brick. And it's the same when I go run on there. I've done exactly that. It's brilliant because it's the best way. And people don't know that running on the soft is worse for you, but it just feels better to run on something harder. So, yeah. Yeah, I was training for the marathon here and I used to run on that narrow brick. Yeah, it's like the rubber, then the boardwalk, wooden planks, and then there's a the separation block, 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 all the way for, for seven kilometers. And, um, yeah, I do remember overtaking people coming back onto the it's middle true, and then true, people true, coming towards you, they're doing the same and you just, you've got to go around them. Yeah. It just feels more efficient and also, I, because the, the marathon is run on concrete, yeah. I wanted to, I didn't want to run for six to nine months on padded terrain and then have to go and pound concrete for, for 42k. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so um, I want to, to ask you, for people then who, uh, how can they tell themselves like if they need to have a higher arch or if they need to get a, a whole a full assessment or if just an off the shelf will be enough for them? The, like I said, everybody's arch, everybody's foot, everything is different. And it's if, if you have repeated injuries in the lower part of your foot or in the lower part of your ankle, then you need to consider why, not just keep on treating it sore, it's sore, it's sore. So that's one thing you really need to be aware of. So that's the point where you go, I need to see somebody who's a specialist. You can't just walk into a shop and say, I want to get those four millimeter drop because Joe said on the Life of Education podcast, they're good. Some shops do gait assessments, but they only, they, they do static gait assessment, which makes no sense to me. They get you to stand on a pad, they get you to stand off and they go, oh, you have an arch, here's this shoe, which is pointless because when you walk, your foot changes, it's a, it's a mobile entity and you stand on this heat pad and you go, oh yeah, you've got an arch. So what I usually tell people is when you get out of the shower, when you're on the beach, walk, have a look back at your footprint, is there an arch? Yeah, okay, so then you know that it's a little bit more dynamic. Um, you should have three arches in the foot. Most people only really think of the one on the inside, but there's one on the outside and then there's a transverse one through the middle. So it's having all three arches working efficiently to give you that strong foot, to allow you then to put the forces down to be able to run. It's not as simple as I've got an arch, I haven't got an arch, it's whether my arch is functional. And there's, I think there's five ways, your five parts of the foot that give you the arch. And there's five components in the foot. Um, do you want to talk about the five little bits? Yeah, go ahead. So the, I usually, usually say that the arch is a bit like a bridge. So you have bridges which are just designed by just blocks that all put on top of each other, which is the shape of the bones in our foot, they're all wedged. So then the force can't, when you put the force on the top, it's fine. Then if you think of a suspension bridge, which have wires come down, those are the long tendons in your calf. They come down, they loop under the arch and keep the arch up. Then you look at just a normal bridge, which is just structurally sound without any problems across the, the bottom. Those are just your ligaments within each of the bricks. Then you've got the plantar aponeurosis, so the structure at the bottom of the foot, which is a bit like putting a rope tightening it and it brings everything closer at the bottom. That's what gives you, uh, gives you the other one. And then you have more muscles within the foot as well that give you the minute sections. So think of it as a bridge with a nice arch, plus a suspension, <coughs> plus this another suspension underneath, plus all the concrete in between each of the bricks, and it gives you a really rigid arch. 
if one of these things are not working, then everything's out, out of sync. And then what about people who have something that's too rigid? You can have something called hallux rigidus, which is stiffness in the big toe and in the middle of the foot. <coughs> Sorry. That's my right foot. Yeah. And if you have hallux rigidus, it limits something called the windlass mechanism, which is probably one of the most important things within the human foot. Um, have you heard of the windlass? No. So the windlass mechanism is a process that when your big toe bends past 60 degrees of, uh, of extension, so up towards the shin, it, in, it increases your arch height naturally by tightening the aponeurosis, so the stuff at the bottom of the foot, which in theory then turns your foot into towards supination, which then starts the toe-off phase to propel you forwards. So if you've got a stiff big toe, you can't engage the plantar aponeurosis, you can't then start to supinate the foot to bring yourself out of pronation to then push you forwards. So something as simple as just wiggling your big toe can increase your arch height. Yeah, so there's a good test for that where you, you pull up the big toe and you see if yep. you can adjust to see if the, the height of the arch changes. Passive dorsiflexion or flexion, extension of the big toe. So stand on two feet, even on one foot, somebody else lifts your big toe up, it should increase your arch as well as externally rotate the hip and externally rotate the knee. That's the proper sign that everything should rotate outwards. Mine doesn't do any of that. Shame. What I want to talk about as well is something my friend was telling me yesterday, being in Dubai, sat by a swimming pool, looking at each other's feet. He looked at my feet and thought, those feet look like they could run. I looked at his feet, he used to play rugby for England, and they literally just look like pieces of meat at the end of his legs. And I said, and he said to me, why are your feet, why have you got that hard skin there, why have you got this, why have you got that? And I looked at him and said, why are your feet like two pieces of meat? Obviously he wasn't as, as slim as, his feet weren't as slim as mine, but they were just something at the end of his leg. And he was telling me that when he went to Fiji on holiday this year, um, he was talking to some of the Fijian players, and when they won the Olympics rugby sevens, he was actually talking to the coach that coached the, re, the Fiji Rugby Sevens team. And he said, the guy came up to him and said, why do all my Fijian rugby players keep on getting ankle injuries? They keep on twisting their ankles, they keep on twisting their ankles, I can't stop them twisting their ankles. But they were brought up not wearing footwear and climbing trees, basically. So then when they were given football boots, which have support, studs, just everything a foot shouldn't have, then they kept having problems. And the way you walk up a tree, I've never really done one, but your feet are turned outwards yeah yeah so they're they're night they like being in that position they then put them in a boot and then they run and then they kept on going over on their ankle and that comes back to the thing we were talking about the foot does most what it does does best what it does most and in this case uh, literally we have a good old discussion about that as well as the fact that you're going to get a lot of fractures anyway in rugby because it's not a smooth sport but yeah it's interesting contact sport <clears throat> yeah but then again, you see just as many people getting injured running in straight lines, even if they're just sprinters. And yeah. it's, uh, it's just because the amount of force is going through the body are just so high. Yeah. So I wanted to talk to you, Joe. You're doing lots of other exciting things. Uh, maybe you can tell us about them. One of them is your prehab uh, series of videos that you do on YouTube. Yeah, so I'm about to launch something called Prehab World, which is a, uh, a platform for injury prevention, basically. And all it basically talks about is normalizing and making the body as functional as possible for the tasks you're asking it to do. A lot of people get most of their injuries because they're just doing things their body can't cope with. So what you have to do, or you have to take a step back and say, right, we either reduce what we're asking your body to do, or we increase your body's capacity to be able to do these exercises. And more often than not, people go, okay, tell me how to make myself better. So in my clinic itself, I run a, um, 
an injury prevention screening uh, to a lot of people. And back in the UK, I used to do it to some of the football teams and rugby teams. So pre-season, patients or clients would come to me and say, I keep pulling my hamstrings, I don't want to pull my hamstring this, this, this season because I always end up having six to eight, month, eight weeks out. So then I literally look at everything from their big toe up to their jaw and work out what isn't working, what is working, where are we, where are asymmetries are, where you need to strengthen, blah, 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 blah. Takes a good hour, hour and a half, I'll do a gait analysis, I'll do everything from toe to neck. Then I'll send them away for two months with just two or three exercises to work on their worst bit, then we get them back in and we do a repeat. And then the way that the football clubs used to understand it and come to me is it's easier for them to pay to see me one session than when they're injured, see me twice a week for eight weeks. So financially it makes sense. And that's why I've instigated down at our clinic. Um, but it's usually busy round about the August, September time because it's the pre-football, rugby, hurling, lacrosse. It's, that's when everyone starts to get fit again. But then when it comes to the actual YouTube channel and the, the Instagram, which we're going to hopefully try and produce, there'll be little snippets, a bit of an exercise. If you keep on getting anterior knee pain, try these exercises. If your hips, you feel like your legs are the wrong size, try this glute stretch. If you keep on getting low back pain, try this. Yeah, do you know, I think that's so uh, valuable. One of the things that I really uh, learned through this kind of whole journey of being really injured and then recovering is that you really need to be your own um, ambassador to a certain degree. And that's a bad word. But in terms of... I know that I'm empowered because I'm discovering my body and discovering what doesn't work with it and what needs uh, needs more time and care and exercise and then actually doing it and that's the, the key. So it's nice for people to say, okay, well, how do I empower myself to be able to find out what's going on, obviously seek uh, some help, but then at the same time be able to go, okay, well, I can look for Joe's lecture and have a look at this and then do this. At the end of the day, you are your own specialist in your body. You are your expert in yourself. Yeah, that's um, a better way yeah, of it's, it's true because I, I sit down and the main three questions I ask my clients is what makes it worse, what makes it better, and what's the pattern of your pain, or what's the pattern of your problems. And people look at me and go, go I don't know, that's why I'm here. And I go, well, you've lived with this pain for months. The simple thing is do more of the things that make it feel better, do lesser things that make it feel worse, and try and avoid your patterns of pain, and you'll get better. But people just need someone sometimes to tell them. The best time is when a client comes to me and they say, my pain is here when I do this at this time of the day and I think it's because of this, 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 this. It makes my job easier then I can just dive straight in and actually start fixing the problem rather than have to spend the first hour just trying to pull everything out of them to try and work out what it is. And like you said yourself, you need to be aware of what your body is telling you. And they might be telling you because you're not sleeping well, because your, your skin's breaking out, because your hair isn't good quality or tons of things. Or it could be because you're in pain. Right? Your body loves a homeostasis. It loves to be level with a little bit of a challenge. It doesn't like to, to, to digress. Because that's when your cells die and you pass away, unfortunately. Yeah. So tell me a, a little bit about what people can expect to see on this channel and some of the exercises that you're going to be putting on now. Yeah. So what I would expect to see is that I want, I want it to be a two-way thing. So people will comment on the channel on Instagram saying, I keep on getting this, I keep on getting this problem, and then I'll make a little video on that problem and post it hopefully a week later. So it'll be a two-way channel, so it'll be interactive. Um, people can email me stuff and direct message me to ask questions, and I'll be there to answer them and maybe give advice um, within reason. A lot of the stuff linking in with a uh, life education here is the, the education side, and I'm not 
doing this to educate professionals. I'm doing it to educate people. I'm doing it so you can wake up and go, I want to get fit. I might not be able to afford to go to physio, see a physio, but I've got a bit of pain. Like you said yourself, you looked on Instagram, you found this cool website, the Foot Collective. You saw these toe separators, you tried them and they were good. It was, it was easy. And I want it to be that easy. Like, technology these days, you should be able to just click on something, type in, I have anterior knee pain, and I should be able to say it could be because of this, 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 this. Try this, this, this. If it doesn't work, seek a professional. That's basically what it should be. But proofs in the pudding. I think particularly because people, uh, and I say this very generally, it's not very accurate, but I think a lot of people think that the solution to, to their pain is to have surgery, and just from experience, surgery can actually take you back a long time. Um, it can take you back six months, or I don't know if you agree with me. Yeah, um, you never really want to dive in with a knife and cut up the body because there's a lot yeah. more going on that, that, in the, the neural system. And you know, surgery is never really the answer unless I don't know, unless it's high stakes. You know, if you've got time, if you can be patient with it, and you can go through a proper conventional rehab process of exercises, some soft tissue work maybe, some, some recreative movement patterns, so it's always going to be better than uh, diving in and chopping up. Yeah, of course. Like, I, I remember one instance uh, with my foot, so I had all this metal work uh, on my foot, and I remember it was causing me a lot of pain, so I asked the surgeons to remove it, and he basically told me that to get the metal out, they would need to strip all the muscles from the bone then remove the metal work, and then then I would have to start again. And I remember after the surgery, like my feet were like 10 months back. They couldn't walk, they couldn't lift, they couldn't do anything. I was like, why did I do this? Yeah. Um, I think working in the National Health Service in the UK, we are designed to chop weightlessness. That's what we are, and that's one reason why I left. I'm not, I'm not being horrible to NHS. If you've got a life-threatening condition, it's brilliant. Yeah. But if you twist your ankle, you've got to wait six weeks to see a physio, which is, you're better by then anyway. So that's one reason why I moved to Dubai, because I can work acutely. If patients twist their ankle that morning, I can see them that day, and their prognosis is 100 times better. But when you look at, like you said yourself there, the, um, the surgery, in the UK there's a protocol, the NICE guidelines stipulate, first you have to see a GP, they'll give you painkillers. Painkillers don't work, they'll send you to physio. Physio doesn't work, they'll send you for investigations. Investigations don't work, probably physiotherapy again, because now we know what's wrong with the investigations. If the investigations don't work and the physio doesn't work, then you see a surgeon. Then they'll maybe inject, then you'll have physio, then you'll have surgery. Then you'll have more physio. In Dubai, unfortunately, it's sort of the opposite way around, literally. You'll have a, a twisted knee, the first thing you're going to do is see a doctor, the doctor goes, you need surgery. They'll have surgery, then they'll come to me, and then they'll start the process. There's not many things in the world that you need surgery for, um, as far as your no, body okay. is concerned. Sorry, as far as your body, the human mechanical body is concerned. If it's digestion, heart, lungs, obviously that's a medical emergency. There's things called red flags, which, like say for example, you have that much compression on your spinal cord that it's limiting your nerve function to your bladder and your bowel and your legs, you need surgery that minute, within, within seconds. But if you get a little bit of sciatica and the, the disc is a little bit slipped, I hate when people use that, or if, if the disc is protruding and touching a nerve, there's lots of stuff physiotherapists, osteopaths, rehab specialists can do 
to then help to move that disc away or to, 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 to guide the nerve away or to glide the nerve and then you don't need the surgery. But here, I've seen patients who are 14, 15 years old who have had um, fusions in their spine because they had back pain. And the young girls come in with scars all up their spine and they say, the doctor said I need to have these rods in my spine. And I looked at their x-rays. I'm not a specialist, I'm not an orthopedic surgeon, but I say to them, did you have physiotherapy? They go, no, the doctor said it wouldn't work. Yeah, it's it's a real it's a sad shame that it's happening that way, and I yeah. think um, I think I agree with you entirely in the sense that uh, when you have a massive accident, all of these procedures are life uh, saving, so they they help you to stay alive. But when people have niggling back pain or uh, just a lifestyle conditions, it's not um, it's not. I think we need to do something else before we jump into surgery, and this is why your prehab stuff is so great because you can at least uh, at least try and use some corrective exercises to to learn about your own body and to uh, fix things before you need surgery. Yeah, one of the other main things within this uh, prehab is, like I said to you before, is sports specific. So I'm going to do blocks of cycling related injuries, running related injuries, swimming related injuries contact sport related injuries, Pilates and yoga related injuries. Because I see a lot of people who do yoga, Pilates, weight bearing through the hands with wrist pain, shoulder pain, because the human body isn't designed to bear weight on our arms. They're designed to reach into trees and pick apples and throw spears. That's what they're for. So when you see people coming in, I've been working on my handstands, my this, that, the other, I get wrist pain, I get shoulder pain. We've got to change how their body can cope with these demands on their body, and it's, it's right across the board. It's not as specific to one thing. Yeah. yeah. So, Joe, if people want to follow you on Instagram, uh, how can they do that? Well, with the, the Prehab World, like, it's a new account. Um, it's due to be released hopefully middle of this year. I'm just trying to get my contact together, and it is just Prehab World, um, just all one word, obviously. Um, and the same with uh, YouTube channel, the exact same Prehab World. It's in process, um, but keep keep eye open, and it should hopefully be released middle this year. Awesome! Thank you very much, Joe. Yeah, thanks Thank so you. much. Thanks Joe. for having me. It's been brilliant. Uh, so Joe's lecture is going to be available on lifeofeducation.com. Amazing! Thanks, guys. Nice. See you guys. Thank you. Bye.